Good morning, everybody. I'm Paul Lisnick. Good morning. I'm Timon Bradley. Welcome to WGN-TV Political Report. Coming up. He does not understand what the federal government's role is supposed to be in a national emergency. The governor takes on the Trump administration. We'll take a closer look at how the White House has responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. Plus, with a crucial role to play in the Democratic presidential race, how will Wisconsin handle the looming election in the time of coronavirus? And later... David Brown, reporting to duty. I'm at your service. Chicago soon will have a new police superintendent. We're talking with the man who helped lead the search for the city's new top cop. And we begin this morning with some grim numbers here in Illinois. There are now more than 10,000 known cases of the new coronavirus across our state. The total number of deaths now at 243. Governor J.B. Pritzker issuing a stern warning to residents who aren't following his stay-at-home order. Those people either are not paying attention to the news uh, or they're stupid. Um, that's all I can say. I mean, there's no reason why somebody should should be ignoring this. You're going you, you could be giving it to your own family and you could get it yourself. Um, and and, the, and we're not asking much. We really are. Not, I mean, at this moment, we're asking you to stay at home to protect people uh, for some number of weeks now. And um, and you should you know, you should listen because uh, you're putting everybody in danger. In Illinois, health officials say they are concerned that the spread of the virus will exacerbate health and equity issues in minority communities. If you know that those disparities exist in terms of health outcomes, you can imagine that overlaying a new disease is only going to exacerbate whatever inequities already exist. Now, data also shows another minority group is at the front lines of the fight against COVID-19, from healthcare workers to cleaning crews, delivery services. Immigrants make up a significant portion of those still working in the field, but non-citizens aren't eligible for help other than COVID-19 testing and treatment from the federal government. Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia represents Illinois' 4th District, covering parts of Chicago's southwest and northwest sides, as well as the western suburbs of Cook County. The district is home to a diverse constituency with a large majority of Hispanic residents. The congressman joins us live this morning from his home in Chicago. Good morning. Thanks for waking up and joining us. Good morning. Good to join you. You expressed concern this week about people at ICE detention facilities saying that those the centers are not equipped to handle the COVID-19 outbreak. Where are you seeing uh, issues at detention facilities across the country and what should be done? Yeah. Well, there are uh, detention facilities in almost every state across the country, some of them in private uh, detention centers, uh, for-profit uh, detention centers along the border, but almost in every state here in uh, Illinois, we have uh, several facilities. And what we're saying is that the conditions under which uh, migrants are kept uh, awaiting uh, a hearing, which could take months and months, sometimes over a year, are not adequate for the public health measures that we're urging everyone to take. They are confined in large numbers with unsanitary conditions. Very, very often, we think the best policy would be to release them. Most of them have 
uh, relatives who live in the U.S., they will show up to hearings that have been demonstrated time and time again. It's the right thing to do. And right here at home, we're trying to get the same thing done at Cook County Bail, where there's been an outbreak of COVID-19 cases among detainees as well as personnel. The risk here is that you take the COVID home to your families and you also uh, spread it throughout the community, especially as many employees from the criminal courts buildings come out to many of the restaurants in Little Village and surrounding neighborhoods. Congressman, we all know that the virus knows no boundaries, certainly not across cities or states uh, or even countries for that matter. But some like yourself are suggesting that minority groups are facing a larger impact and burden. Is that because of the available resources available in certain communities or is it because some groups are more susceptible to underlying health conditions like asthma or heart disease or diabetes? Health disparities, of course, uh, has uh, much to do with it. And we know that minorities uh, you know, suffer from the consequences of our public health system and uh, other structural issues in uh, society. But what we're uh, now focusing on is that many people who are asked to stay home uh, you know, are in essential positions in the economy. That is getting food delivered, cleaning up uh, facilities and businesses all over. Uh, immigrants, for example, work in the hardest uh, to fill jobs, uh, some of the most dangerous jobs as well. So they're required to come on in. Uh, African-Americans are similarly uh, in society suffering from these consequences. So this public health epidemic is certainly shedding light on the inequities in our society and the impact and the brunt that minority uh, groups in our society will you know, pay the consequence for. Congressman, today is April 5th, the final deadline for many people's rent. So many Americans, millions are out of work. Is there the need for Congress to pass a, a rent freeze, a mortgage freeze to provide people for relief? And if so, how in the world are we going to pay for that? Yes, uh, I've been advocating for a rent freeze and for help for both tenants as well as uh, landlords. The bill that was passed a week ago last Friday takes a step in that direction. It provides for a freeze, a moratorium on rent payments as it relates to public housing residents, as well as anyone who lives in a building that is backed by federal loans. That is over 60% of all the housing in the country. I believe that if the crisis worsens as we move forward in in time that there is the necessity for government to step in and to provide a subsidy for rent given the expenses that all people especially low-income people are incurring during this time but by the same token it provides a forbearance on mortgage payments to landlords so that they are not uh, having to uh, you know, make payments while not receiving rent. So we're considerate of those situations. But moving forward, I think we may have to take that type of uh, action in subsequent legislation, especially in a fourth bill that many of us are working to prepare to provide additional relief, especially to the poor and working families. You know, on the health care front, the, the government has made it clear, yes, uh, well, you know, they'll take care of everybody, even if they're uh, not legal in the country with regard to COVID testing and such. But people losing their jobs, people are losing their health care. What are they supposed to do? Well, you know, uh, we should open up federally uh, a re-enrollment period for the Affordable Care Act. 
this is an issue that is now haunting Donald Trump because he has sought to do away with it. Imagine if he would have succeeded in doing away with Obamacare, how many more people would be even more vulnerable. This is an excellent period to re-enroll people. It shows why we need a system that doesn't leave anyone behind as it relates to uh, health care and access to it for everyone. If we're going to protect everyone during this public health epidemic, we ought to have systems in place that are universal and not exclusive of anyone. This crisis is bringing to the forefront why we need to have a system that covers everybody in our society, because unless everyone is covered, then no one is truly safe from epidemics like the one that we are experiencing in our country today. And the world is experiencing in almost every country we've now seen cases of the COVID-19 virus spread. Congressman, we have about 30 seconds left. Different states are getting different guidance. Some states have the stay-at-home order. Others do not. We saw in New Jersey there was an engagement party that was broken up. People were arrested. Do you think that the White House should issue a national stay-at-home order? I do think the White House needs to do that. We need to have one rule, uh, one practice across the country. Uh, some uh, governors are holding out on this practice. That doesn't make any sense. Public health needs to include everyone in that effort. Also, I want to urge everyone to apply for the unemployment compensation benefits that the Congress enacted. It's a supplement of 600 additional dollars to do what the state of Illinois pays. There's also a lot of support for small businesses in our communities. These businesses are the backbone and the lifeblood of so many neighborhoods and communities across Illinois. People should apply for these loans. Congressman Chewy Garcia, the 4th District, stay at home, stay safe. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. And we're going to take our first break. Coming up next. The federal government has failed to do the planning that it needs on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis to be prepared. Is it too little, too late? We've got a closer look at the federal government's response to the pandemic. And still to come later in the show, grappling with its own coronavirus outbreak, a consent decree and looming summer violence, the Chicago Police Department gets a new leader. Stay with us. Mayor Lori Lightfoot and Governor J.B. Pritzker have not shied away from criticizing the White House, blasting the response to the pandemic, calling it inadequate. In Washington, President Trump continues to say his administration could not have known what was coming. This morning, a closer look at the decisions that led us to this moment. This will go down in history as a profound failure of our national government. March 2017, the first Trump administration budget proposal calls for cuts to CDC funding. Congress intervenes, passing a year-over-year -year increase, the start of an annual funding fight. April 2018, White House National Security Advisor John Bolton begins dismantling the team in charge of pandemic response. December 31, 2019, Chinese health officials inform the World Health Organization about a cluster of patients with pneumonia. Eight days later, the first death in China. January 20th, the first case on U.S. soil, a man from Washington state. January 22nd, <laughs> Wuhan is locked down, people at airports screened. While the WHO sounds the alarm, we need to prevent transmission through amplification events and super spreading events uh, and obviously uh, prevent further international spread. The Trump administration insists America is ready. 
We don't yet know everything we need to know about this virus. But I want to emphasize, that does not prevent us from preparing and responding. January 24th, the first case is reported in Chicago. There are more questions than there are answers. Late January, President Trump downplaying, almost ignoring the threat. But hopefully it won't be uh, as bad as some people think it could be. We think we have it very well under control. Well, we pretty much shut it down coming in from China. The clerk will read the second article of impeachment. February 5th, the Senate impeachment vote distracts the nation. But five days later, the president raises COVID-19 at a campaign rally. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. By late February, as coronavirus ravages South Korea, Iran, and Italy, President Trump tweets, the virus is under control and the stock market is starting to look very good. In fact, we're very close to a vaccine. February 26th, 27th, and 28th, a heightened sense of alert. The White House announces a task force led by Vice President Pence. You know, it could get worse before it gets better. It could maybe go away. We'll see what happens. Nobody really knows. By March 10th, the virus spreading rapidly in the U.S., it's clear efforts at containment have failed. I think the U.S. has done a very good job on testing. The lines at testing sites in Chicago tell a different story. March 11th, no more denial. We have rung the alarm bell. The World Health Organization declares the outbreak a pandemic. My fellow Americans. And President Trump addresses the nation. I am officially declaring a national emergency. Two very big words. Mid-March, COVID-19's devastation sets in. The number of deaths soar, hospitals are overwhelmed, the stock market tanks, and states issue stay-at-home orders. But President Trump, still likening COVID-19 to ordinary flu, announces he wants the country to reopen by Easter. March 26th, the total number of cases in the U.S. reached the highest in the world. The states, bearing the heaviest brunt of the national emergency, begged the federal government for more help, more resources. March 27th, President Trump signs an unprecedented $2 trillion rescue package. March 30th, a presidential about-face. Social distancing guidelines are extended through the end of April. March 31st, COVID-19, now a national nightmare, with U.S. infectious disease experts warning of possibly 100,000 to 200,000 deaths. The president, who just one month earlier called the virus a hoax, offers this grim assessment. This is going to be a rough two-week period. This will go down in history as a profound failure of our national government. The White House did not answer our request for comments. In his daily briefings, President Trump continues to defend his administration's response to the virus. The president has repeatedly said the nation's governor should be more grateful for his help. We're going to take a break. Paul has a look at what's coming up. Hey, thanks, Taman. Four months after the surprise firing of Eddie Johnson, Chicago will once again have a permanent police chief. We are Chicago, and we deserve the best. And in this time, for this moment, David Brown is the absolute best. After the break, we'll hear from the head of the Chicago Police Board on that pick. And later, essential to democracy or a danger to the public? The latest on Tuesday's primary election just across our border in Wisconsin. We'll be right back. As dark as some of those times have been, it is also in those times that I have seen incredible resiliency 
faith and the infinite goodness in people. And I am confident these same characteristics are here in Chicago. He made headlines for his leadership after five police officers were killed in Dallas in 2016. Now David Brown will bring 40 years of law enforcement experience to Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot announced Brown as her choice for the city's next superintendent on Thursday, praising both his determination and humility. Alderman will have to approve the pick before it becomes final. Mayor Lightfoot says city council is trying to figure out a way to meet safely before the end of the month. Guillen Foreman is the president of the Chicago Police Board. He's joining us live this morning to talk about that pick. Good morning, Mr. Foreman. Um, Good morning. In the end, the mayor went outside for her selection, said that, in fact, was a factor in her decision. What reaction do you expect from the cops on the beat and top cops to the fact that she went outside? Yeah, um, you know, the very first conversation that uh, the police board had was with members of the FOP, uh, the leadership of the FOP. And, and of course, um, their preference was to have an insider. Um, but when we continued the conversation asking really what were the, the qualities, the qualifications that one is looking for in a superintendent and what we need to lead the the uh, Chicago Police Department, um, I believe that that Brown absolutely has those qualifications and that you know, the police department, they are a group of professionals, right? And and if and they should be treated as professionals. And I believe that they will, as professionals, they will respect their chain of command and work with Brown. The CPD, they're residents of the city and they want the, the best for the city as well. I think we have we have a good leader now, a, a, you know, a future leader now. And I believe that we will be able to uh, to work together. Mr. Foreman, let's uh, be honest about the process here. The board revealed its list on Thursday and Mayor Lightfoot announced her pick the next day. How are we supposed to believe the mayor was not driving this thing? Well, the, the, the easiest way I can tell you is that the mayor was absolutely a part of the last superintendent search. And uh, I actually sent her a text message after uh, she told me, uh, after we gave her the three names officially and then after she told me, uh, that she was going to pick uh, Brown as as her choice. Uh, I sent her a thank you, just saying a lot. Thank you for allowing us to be independent. She's gone through this process. It's a hard process. Takes the board away from our family and from our work for a long time. Um, you know, the thing that I'll say is that we kept her involved kind of the entire way. Uh, when we got the 25 applicants, gave her a good summary. And then as we continue to whittle it down, we continue to give her information. You know, this is probably one of the most important picks that the mayor will have uh, during, you know, during the course of, of her four years. And so I th we thought it was very important to, to kind of give the pros and cons of each candidate as we were going through the list. You know, clearly Brown comes in as sort of a celebrity cop, if you will, uh, uh, having dealt with the Dallas situation, wrote a book called Called to Rise. I'm just curious with uh, the politics the way they are here and uh, whose profile gets ahead of others, any concerned about that sort of celebrity status of an incoming superintendent? No, I mean, I, I don't think celebrity status has anything to do with it. I think, again, we're talking about professionals, right? And Chicago being, you know, one of the top uh, departments in the country. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense to make sure that we have someone who has the ability to uh, to bring community and the police department together, who has the ability to uh, to support the, the department itself and make sure that our officers get the necessary training that they need to get, uh, especially kind of during this time of consent decree, uh, making sure that that the department uh, does have a good relationship with City Hall, uh, making sure that outreach workers making sure, you know, when we went out, we talked to had over 25 
meetings in the community, as well as three large meetings. Uh, we had individual conversations with, with uh, individual aldermen about what it is that we were looking for. And again, I think that what we're looking for is someone who has a proven track record of, of dealing with crisis, right? And I think that we absolutely have that right now. Someone who has the ability, who's been through things that, that none of us have, frankly. And even if you think about what we're dealing with right now with the pandemic, someone who has the ability to kind of think through you know, what are the next moves? Nobody knows exactly what the right answer is, but we do have a proven leader who has shown that he has the ability to take command uh, in times of crisis. There were four people shot in Chicago the night that Brown was introduced. Violence continues even under the stay at home order. Obviously being superintendent is a thankless job. What was the moment, Gian, when you knew that Brown was the right man to fix Chicago's violence challenges? Um. You know, the, the thing is, is that it's uh, we, we act as a board. Right. And our, our job was to select three candidates. And that was what we did. Uh, I'm not going to get into what my personal feelings were or what other board members, individual personal feelings were. But, um, you know, had it been any of the candidates, we absolutely felt like they would have been good. The mayor made her selection and we're going to stand by that. All right. Ian Foreman, president of the Chicago Police Board. Thanks for the insight on the process. We'll see how it all goes. Thank you very much. Thank stay you. safe. Stay safe. You, you guys too, don't sir. look like you're six feet apart. We are. We are. We are. Thank you, sir. All right. One more break. And what's ahead for the all important Wisconsin presidential primary when we come back? Calls to halt Wisconsin's primary election have gone unanswered. Voters in Wisconsin will be allowed to go to the polls this Tuesday after a partisan battle just north of the Illinois border. Democratic Governor Tony Evers called for a special legislative session yesterday, but Republicans in charge of the State House rebuffed the request, saying it was simply too little too late. But a federal judge has extended the deadline to return absentee ballots to April 13th. The results could be the only indication of where Democratic voters stand until early summer. All right, thanks for watching this morning. Stay home, stay safe.